Hi, folks. How are you doing? For me, it's uh, it's kind of the first Monday off the back of the Easter break. One of my two kids is back at school. Um, so I feel like the kind of uh, the end is nigh in a kind of nice way. We've had a lovely time together, but I'm definitely, I don't know, I love what I do. So I'm excited to kind of jump back into work and see what the rest of the year has in store for us. We've got lots of exciting guests coming up on the podcast over the next couple of weeks. Uh, we've got Asif Kapadia, Vincenzo Lamagna and Sylvie Landra. So that's director, composer and editor of this fantastic production called Creature, which is Asif's interpretation of this beautiful English national ballet performance. And it's just a great story. So that's coming up. Uh, Dead Ringers, which is Alice Birch's take on the Cronenberg uh, film from the 80s, stars Rachel Weisz. Uh, in the lead roles. Uh, That's coming to Amazon on the 21st of April and we've got Rachel and Alice on the show talking about it. Loads of great music in that as well. So yeah, lots of great stuff coming up for you. So um, yeah, it's a funny old time with regards to films. I mean, there's loads of great stuff around, loads of things on the way as well. But it's nice because we can kind of take a little bit of a breath and just kind of dive into some really exciting new things, be that celebrating things like Creature or Dead Ringers. Definitely while still encouraging you guys to get back into the cinema and make sure that you you keep that afloat because where would we be without the wonderful joys and escape of cinema in that big dark room with the sound almost pumping blood around your system. Anyway, today we're focusing on something that's been, I would say, one of the TV events of the year and we're really excited to be able to celebrate a success with two of the composers who worked on it. Based on the 2013 video game, The Last of Us tells the story of Ellie and Joel as they navigate a post-apocalyptic world in which a mass fungal outbreak has caused humanity to collapse, with the infected turned into bloodthirsty zombie-like creatures. Now, the game was originally scored by Gustavo Santoalala, who returns to work alongside David Fleming on the HBO show, which you can watch on Sky and now TV. And I was very lucky to speak individually to both of them. And we'll begin with Gustavo, not least because, well, he wrote the now iconic theme tune. Thank you so much for your time. It's such a treat. Before I dive into um, The Last of Us, if you don't mind, I wanted to talk about a few other things, if that would be okay first. The diversity and the variety of work that you've done as a, a composer and creative is, is truly wonderful and your storytelling through your work is, is extraordinary. For me, uh, one of my favourites is, is Into the Wild. I adore that film. I think it's um, everything about it. Just all the pieces just 
Yes. I don't know. It was it was such a powerful film for me, and and particularly that music, you know, combination of yours and you yes. know and Eddie's as well. And I wondered if you we could talk about that for a minute before yeah. we dive into something else. What was it about that project sure. that was appealing for you that you wanted to be involved, yeah. and what was the ask? Well, you know, I think uh, the story was uh, appealing, and uh, 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 on top of everything, the fact that it was a real story and. Uh, the idea to working with Sean too, you know, I mean, I met him uh, through Alejandro Gonzalez Iñarri too, and uh, we hit right on immediately. And uh, so there was all these elements that, that, uh, and also, as a matter of fact, the, 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 the fact that Eddie was involved and, and, and Kaki King, which is another guitar player that I really uh, like very much, which at the time I ha- hadn't met, but it was funny because then I, I remember I was at, at a, a dinner in which actually she played and then she came to me to say oh man i'm such a big fan i said no no i'm a big fan of yours <laughs> so uh, so there was all the all all these elements that mm-hmm. that made it really, really uh nice for me uh, to be a part of you know i'm very picky about the projects that i get involved with so yeah uh, and usually i do things that are actually on the sort of go through the border through the side you know no no i really don't belong to the sort of the the hollywood uh, system you know no, yeah. i don't have anything against it but it just it, it didn't happen to me to be involved in i've always been involved with films that actually some of them like brokeback mountain you know they were rejected by hollywood for like 10 years yeah. they couldn't make them, you know and then, you know, Motorcycle Diaries or always films, uh, Motorcycle Diaries was a film that actually, you know, was the, the biggest foreign film in the United States that year, but couldn't actually be presented at the Oscars because it was financed parts by France, parts by Brazil, parts oh, by United man. States. No country wanted to take that film to represent them, you know, so they, they you know, we got the song, you know, remember, I mean, that yeah. I produced the track. But uh, and I got the BAFTAs for for the BAFTA for the for yes. This. Well, that was my first big award, you know. Actually, I wasn't even gonna. We were not gonna go because at the time I was nominated. I've done two films at the time. I did Amores Perros, and yeah. that was my film, you know. Wow. And I was nominated alongside I don't know Howard Shore and some other people. I said, "There's no way I have you know a chance to do that," and you know. And then they were saying, "No, no, you should come. You should come." People in in there, you know, in England were saying. No, you should come. People love the movie here and they love the music. You should. So we decided with my wife and I said, oh, okay, let's go. You know, yeah. and I when we were coming in the, the theater. They were playing the music of Motorcycle Diaries. I went, oh, oh, <laughs> and the movie won a uh, best foreign film and, and it won the music. You know, that was my, my very, very big first uh, award. And then you mentioned Brokeback Mountain and then Babel as well. You won for it as well, didn't you? Yeah. You know, after that, it wasn't really uh, uh, something planned. You know, there wasn't really like a master plan. Okay, I did this 
before because I started as a as a recording artist, as a singer songwriter. I mean, with my band as an artist and as a producer when I was 17 years old in Argentina. You know, I did my first album when I was 18 years old, and that album, which is now also re released in vinyl and stuff, and it was done in mono. That's how far <laughs> I go. <laughs> it, uh, still, I think if you hear that album, it's the blueprint of my career. In yeah. that album, everything. Yeah, is the music of the films, my, you know, my sort of my intentions and my concepts as a, as a producer, you know, I'm very visual in my music, you know, so I had my fans at, at the time. And then, then I uh, I came to the States and we went through that period of, of sort of adapting myself. I mean, I sort of have to come to the States at the end of the 70s because my country was in a terrible yeah. moment with a military junta and actually 30,000 people disappeared at the hands of the government. I was in jail since I was 16 many times just for having long hair and playing an electric guitar because I didn't belong to any political party. I didn't do any drugs, nothing. I was just... That was just something that bothers them, you know. Yeah. Or either cut your hair, get in line, or else. So kind of, kind of like that. But then, you know, I became very, very well known as a producer for alternative Latin music. And I had my own label. I was very, very successful for that. I have now 19 Grammys, you know, 17 Latin Grammys and two Anglo Grammys, two, you know, yeah. my Grammy. The thing that moved to the to the movies was very, you know, very, very unexpected. I, I put out a record called Ron Rocco, which is with my little instrument, you know, my Ron Rocco. And I've been playing that instrument since I was a kid too, you know. And I, I, I started collecting recordings for uh, many, for years, you know, and I just showed them to my friends and stuff. I did many records, but never put that. And then I got this opportunity to produce a, a compilation by one of the greatest charango players. You know, the ronroco is, a, is a, an instrument that comes from the charango. So mm -hmm. it'll be like, between a, like a saxophone, a tenor, a baritone, you know, this is like a, like a baritone by a charango, you know? And although it sounds different because it has sustain and stuff. So I think it has its own status as an instrument. So uh, I was uh, called to produce this uh, compilation for Jaime Torres. When I tried to explain people who Jaime Torres was, He's not with us anymore, but who he was, he was kind of like a Ravi Shankar of the Charango, you know? Oh, so it wow. was a guy that I always admire as, as a kid and stuff, you know? I met with a guy, I listened to 400 of his recordings to put together this album. And this is before we became very, very close friends. And it was one of my dear, dearest friends. But at the time, it was the master. And so I was dying to show him what I did, you know, with the instrument. But at the same time, I was scared because I thought I didn't play with the technique that they play, you know, I don't mm -hmm. play long nails and I don't play with the right hand very fast. I do more picking. I can comp and play melody at the same time. So, and the music that I play is not necessary, wasn't necessary music from the Andes mountains. It was <clears throat> just music that came to me, you know? Yeah. After, you know, a few weeks that I knew him stuff, I, I, I gave him the music and I said, Jaime, this is something that some friends of mine do. And I didn't tell him that, you know, that, that it was me, you know. So he calls me like three days later and he says, Gustavo, you, you are the guy that is playing here. Come on. <laughs> I said, well, you know, master, I didn't know that, you know, what you were going to say because, you know, he says, there's not rules of how do you play this instrument, you know, because true, I mean, it's a folk instrument. There's no, but at the time there weren't even books or anything about, you know, it's like a, like a bastard instrument in a way, you know what I mean? It's not yeah, like, yeah, a, yeah. like a guitar or an oboe or a flute, you know? 
so he said, "There's no rules, you know. You you found the spirit of the instrument. Yeah, you make it comes a record. from within. Yeah, you have to make a record. So I put together recordings and I record some more. Actually, I did a piece with him for an, another six months, and I put out Ron Rocco. And that album actually comprises 13 years of my life. Wow. Those recordings, 13 years of my life, they covered. You know." So I put that record out. At the time, I had already my label with Universal, which was uh, a joint venture, which was being very successful with alternative bands from Latin America, selling millions of records. So I knew I didn't have the time to go and promote the record and go out and stuff, more than doing some interviews on the radio and stuff, you know, but no no way of a tour. But, mm -hmm. but I put it out anyhow because of the music and because Jaime told me to do so. And, uh, you know, just... Like that, you know, KCRW here at college, very important college station here, starts yeah. playing the record heavily, you know, and some other radios in the United States, alternative radio. And then I get one call here one day, we get a phone call at the, at the studio. It's, you know, Michael Mann wants to talk to you. He wants to use a piece in the Insider, you know, from Rorocco. Yeah. Wow. And I knew what the movie was about, contemporary with the Rorocco. So I met Michael, he showed me a piece, which is a turning point in the movie, it's a feature cue. So as you know, you know, it's more than two minutes with no dialogue or anything. Yeah, just, it's you. you know? And it just worked fantastic, you know. So at the same time, you know, I had a, a common friend of Alejandro González Iñárritu, which I yeah. didn't know who he was, and said, you know, Gustavo, you have to do the music for Alejandro's movie. And, and she was telling Alejandro, Alejandro, you should meet Gustavo. <laughs> so the story about Amores Perros, which is the first movie that I did, you know, is that I was very busy at the time. I'm always very multi-taxed. I was doing a couple of albums. I was working in some 
other projects. One, I, I said one afternoon I was saying, I mean, I mean, I haven't read a script of the movie because they didn't send me. I haven't seen a rough cut. It's a first time director. You know, I said <laughs> Lucy, you know, because my, my assistant forever. He's been my assistant. I said, yeah. Lucy, call tomorrow and said, you know, say that I'm not going to be able to do this movie. I'm so, you know how busy I am now. I have to do this, this and deliver. I'm not going to be able to do this. You know, it's, I haven't seen anything. I haven't read the script or anything. So, you know, it's a first time director. Let's leave it, you know, in the future, we'll see. In the middle of the night, this is a true, true story. I, I woke up, I woke up, not bathing in sweat, but I woke up in the middle of the night and I started thinking, what if, what if this guy is a genius? What, what if it's an incredible movie and I didn't get the chance to see it or anything? And then I wow. find out the mistake of my life and stuff. No, no, I, I can't say no to something like on a blind decision, you know? Yeah. So I called in the morning, Lucia, say, Lucia, stop. So I say, if you call and say that if they come over to Los Angeles and they show me a movie, I might consider it. We'll see. Sure enough, Alejandro came with a movie. They put the movie in. At the time, it was a VHS, you know? <laughs> he, put, he put the movie in, you know? And I was with, with uh, uh, the engineer that worked with him for, for many years. So he put the movie. He went out because he was a chain smoker at the time. He went out. And I don't know if you remember or if you get the chance to see Amores Perro, but but uh, the first ten minutes of the movie, you know, when when with a dog bleeding in the back, that yeah. car chip, all this stuff. And I remember I look at Anibal and we went, man, we're doing this movie. I don't know what, <laughs> what we have to cancel or whatever, but we're doing this movie. So that really made the relationship with, with Alejandro. Yeah. And then uh, he says at a certain point, Alejandro said, you know, there's this friend of mine, I don't know if you know, know him, Walter Salis. I'm going, yes, Central <laughs> Station, I love him. Well, he's doing this movie, you know, about Ernesto Guevara before he was a chain, you know, he is Argentinian, Guevara. So, you know, you guys should meet, you know. Wow. So I met Walter, we hit right off. We did a, a motorcycle.
then when we were presenting motorcycle at Sundance to get distribution in the United States, they saw the movie, you know, it was fast, for me it was fascinating seeing how the, those deals were made that in that evening, you know, somehow yeah. out dinner and boom, the distribution was in place, party or sort of, you know, gathering at a house and somebody that has been in the business forever and a dear friend, Kathy Nelson, now, you know, she said, you know, Gustavo should meet Ang Lee because he's doing this movie. That's exactly how it happened, you know. That's so amazing. I, they saw the script. I read the script. I was fascinated by the story. Two months after that, I was in New York uh, playing uh, with a, a classical composer from Argentina, I was that I produced some of his stuff, and I was playing at Carnegie Hall with him, my Ron Rocco. And so I was with my Ron Rocco. I just finished rehearsal, and somebody calls me and said, you know, Ang is at the Focus office in Manhattan, and he liked, would like to meet you, you know? Oh. I took the subway and went there, came in with, a, with a Ron Rocco, you know, that doesn't talk that much. And, you know, he pointed at the instrument, like, you know, what's that? I remember I took the instrument out and I started playing without almost no talk, you know. Then we talked. A month later, I sent the music. It was so funny because James Seamus, the, the producer, you know, calls mm -hmm. me and says, oh, man, you won't believe it. I mean, you know, when Ang got the music, he thought you were sending stuff that you've done before just to show him what you do. And he said, damn, I mean, this would have been the perfect okay. music. And he said, no, no, this is the music for the movie, you know? <laughs> and, and I remember he told, he said, James said, well, I see you at the Oscars. And that year was after the following year to the to the Motorcycle Diaries BAFTA. I got nominated again at the BAFTAs, but I lost to John Williams, you know, for Memoirs of Geisha. Yeah. And I don't know if you're interested in all this. That I'm oh, it's you. amazing. I, I love it, Gustavo. I love it. It's, it's brilliant. You're a great storyteller. <laughs> so what happened was that we were going, as you know, here in the States, they call it the award season. Yeah. Because you have... The Critics' Choice Award and the Director Guilds Award and the actor. Well, then comes the BAFTAs, which are very important. That's when it's starting to get momentum, momentum, momentum. No, then the BAFTAs, then the Golden Globes <laughs> and the Oscars. And that's it. That boom, you know, people sort of measure the temperature of how things are, you know, and usually when there's a movie that has a big impact, you, you get multiple nominations in all of those, you know. So obviously the movie and the music got nominated in all of the 
And it was one after the other one, one after the one that was, you know, winning John. John was winning all the, all, all, all mm-hmm. of them, including the BAFTA. So we got to the Golden Globe and I was not only nominated by the, the score, but also by the song, because you know how they have these rules. The Oscars didn't thought that the, the amount of time that the song was on screen allow it to be nominated, yeah. you know, but, but the Golden Globes took it. And I lost once again the score, but I won the song, you know, yeah. that I wrote with Bernie Taupin, you know, because wow. I, I, he asked me, who do you want to write a song? And I remember of uh, Tumbleweed Connection, you know, I remember that album. And I said, you yeah. know, it would be great to do it with Bernie Taupin, thinking, and I mean, who, me, I'm going to write a song with Bernie Taupin, you know. <laughs> they show him a, uh, uh, the movie, he loved it, and he said he was so gracious and so oh, kind. Wow. I, I, I only had the tag of the song, you know, which was a love that will never grow old. Just, I, j- I just had that, you know. Uh, but he wrote all that beautiful, uh, the beautiful lyrics for the song. So we, we suddenly I was there, you know, on stage, yeah. and with Bernie getting this, uh, this golden globe. Go to sleep, may your sweet dreams come. My arms for one more night. I this crazy old notion that calls me sometimes, saying this one's the love of your life. Cause I know a love that will never grow. And then the Oscar was the Oscar. No? And I, I never, by then I had a lot of, I've been blessed with lots of awards. And I was at another point in my life. I was not a kid. I haven't been a kid for a long time, although I'm still a kid. But uh, so, uh, you know, I I took uh, awards just like they are awards, you know. Yeah. And, and uh, but the Oscar really <laughs> got me nervous, you know. And, yeah, I bet. Yeah, and I used to walk through the house, my house, and say, and the winner is, John Williams. Just do, just, do. <laughs> <laughs> just do when they say it, you know what I mean? Yeah, I wasn't, you're prepared. You know I mean? <laughs> yeah. Put the camera on you. You've you, you got to do your happy, sad face. <laughs> your happy loser face. Friday came and I said, man, I mean, you can't go like this. I mean, this is ridiculous. Mm. You know, this is like the World Cup, you know, for us, you know. Yeah. You know what football is for. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's like the final. You can't go like this. You know what I mean? It doesn't matter. I know you're a small team or whatever, but, you know, you have to go. And if you win, you win. And if you lose, you lose. But you can't go with this attitude. So I went there. I remember I met even measure the, the, the theater and stuff. And uh, and it happened. <laughs> and it happened. That's such and a great just, story. And it happened. And, and, you know, and it was funny because they picked Selma Hayek to read the nominees. Oh. And I knew that she could say my name right. Yeah. <laughs> the few yeah. people actually at the Golden Globe, they didn't say it. They pronounced it like if it was Italian. Santa Olalla. You know, and it's Santa Olalia. I love that story. It's it's so interesting you talking about how, you know, you said at the start about how you're kind of picky about what you what you do and what you decide to do. 
And yes. making that choice to work back 10 years ago on The Last of Us, on the video game originally, what was the thing that made you want to jump onto that project? Because it was a completely different... So after, as a matter of fact, I was... Uh... Uh, two two days ago, I had the, the pleasure to do an interview uh, for my t- uh, YouTube channel to Neil, you know, and he told me, he asked me the same thing because he told me that when he proposed, they proposed him, him uh, different composers. And he said, what about Gustavo Santelaya? We left him to the music and everybody around him, you know, in the company. So they said, no, but he, you know. He just he won two Oscars. He he's not gonna want to do a video game, you know what I mean? And then he said, Why do we, we put ourselves so low? You know, stuff. Okay. So yeah. whatever whatever it is, I um first of all, I'm always been very interested in all media. Yeah. The aspect where music, where sound can be uh, involved, I'm interested. And all uh, sort of art forms, I all sorts of genres, I don't divide them for me, music it's divided in Good music and bad music. There's not genres, you know. There's yeah. not. So one of the things that I knew, I'm not a gamer. I'm a horrendous player, you know. But I, I have a son that at the time where I was approached, he was uh, around 15 years old, you know. And he was a good player, and I enjoy immensely watching him play. I didn't, yeah. I didn't. Play. I would sit down and watch him play, and I, I had a lot of fun seeing and trying to figure out what he was doing, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, with my band, you know, with band Bajo Fondo, and I've been, you know, forever playing and, and touring and stuff. And they play a lot of uh, FIFA World Cup, you know, with, yeah. and so I watched it like if I was watching a, a, a football match on Absolutely. TV. Absolutely. By watching my son, I always thought, you know, well, you know, if somebody at some point creates an emotional connection with a gamer, aside of the combat, the survival, aside of all the fighting and all that, if somebody connects, you know, more, emotional deep level of human level this is going to change uh, the the world of games as we know it you know and so after the, the two oscars i was approached by several companies to do uh, video game music you know uh, one very important company we're not gonna name but uh but it was more of the same <clears throat> i said i knew what I, this is the picking stuff you know I, yeah. I knew what i wanted i knew what i wanted so when i met neil <clears throat> and he told me the story of of the last of us i said this is it this is exactly what i had not yeah. not not about zombies or not that part i didn't know but the the emotional content and actually he made it very clear that that was part of the intention of of how the game was designed to get the the uh, the gamer involved in a personal level you know yeah so that was the main reason i mean the main reason was a great story meeting yeah. neil also i think it's very important also who's driving that yeah. story and so so uh, it was a no brainer i mean i immediately knew that i wanted to be involved that was the game that i that i should do and as a matter of fact you know i haven't done any other games yeah
And did you know instinctively as well in terms of instrumentation? Because what's been so beautiful from, I mean, I'm not a gamer at all either, but I've, you know, but I've listened to the music a, a, a lot. And from the journey of the music from the first game to part two to then to the TV show, there's a beautiful simplicity almost to it in a way. And and the choice of instrumentation that it that it's got a human touch and it's got a human connection to it in a way, I think is just it really I don't know, drives that emotion in a way for me. Thank you so much. I mean, I, some things, you know, <clears throat> in my work, I've been able with years to articulate in words <clears throat> because <clears throat> when I was younger, I did, and I worked with lots of <clears throat> elements or tools or things and gestures and stuff that I, that I use uh, that are part of my language and stuff, but I didn't know why I, why I did them. You know, it was just pure instinct. Yeah. Now articulate and I go oh you know I remember always when when James Seamus once again the guy brought back Mantum when I when I had that phone call conversation you know after I sent yeah. the music that he said you know I mean those negative spaces that you use you know and I want negative what is oh he means the silence you know <laughs> yeah. and, and uh, he said you know sometimes I, I felt that you were pulling my leg that it was you know like I mean are you are you joking I mean are you are you you know, because it was so long, you know, but I, I like to think of those silences as eloquent silence. Yeah. Silences that say something, that are talking, that are playing, you know, they're mm. playing that we, we put to, we fill that blank. It's a, it's an active uh, silence. Uh, it's not a silence where uh, that concludes, but you no, know, it's a, it's a silence that actually lingers and you, you know, yeah, and then that moment is like <laughs> I have a also. I mean, it's a theory that I have that I think also in a way sometimes uh, in a way I think that those silences can also draw more attention from the spec to the spectator. It's like when you hear that, you go to the to the front of the seat, you know. Yeah. You know when is that? I don't know. Please, please play that note. You know. And so you 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 know it draws your attention, Absolutely. you know. I think it happens the same thing regarding the playing too. I mean, one of the differences I think in my scores from other scores, and I've been I've done scores with also with orchestras and stuff. You no, know, but there's always in any score, even if there's orchestras and stuff, there's always my playing. And I think the fact that that I play on them, that if my playing is there, it gives another quality to it and a more uh, personal. Several people have mentioned 
uh, including uh, Neil and um, other people that 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 my music you know works almost as a character absolutely and when I saw the first rough cut of uh Brokeback Mountain it was spooky you know because I did <clears throat> this is regarding also the way I work because I do the music not to picture but to the story mm -hmm. to the connection with the characters so It was the genius of Ang Lee to say, you know, I'm going to put this here and this here, and we're going to repeat this. That was all Ang. But he was so courteous and nice to say at the, in the LA Times, he said, you know, that he used the music to uh, create the narrative of the movie. Yeah. So the, the music helped him say, okay, putting this here and this here, I can tell the story, you know, in, in yeah. this particular way. And uh, so when I saw that first cut, it was spooky. There was a, a quality to it, you know, When, when I get to the video game, you know, <clears throat> that also was the case because in video games, you get to see the images in movement and at the very end when everything is rendered. So you work for two years without seeing some drawings and what the director will tell you, the writer will, will tell you, right? Uh, which is the way that I worked. So it was very organic. And when we arrived to the series, it was the same thing because the, the themes were already composed. You know what I mean? It would have been yeah. ridiculous to have put, you know, new themes or new yeah. things. Because Craig Mason, even, you know, that I've come later to the project, but now it's a big part of, of The Last of Us. And Neil both have said that, that my music is part of the DNA of The Last of Us. Yeah. It would have been to do The Last of Us without Ellie, you know, I mean, you can't conceive it, right? Well, the same thing <clears throat> is with, with a new theme, you know, this is not The Last of Us. So I think uh, that uh, personal thing, another element I think that is important is that I I like to to use the rough edges. You know, I I, I uh, compare it to painters when they put a lot of material on their canvas. You know, I like, for example, I mean, one of the normal things that any guitar player or engineer will try to do when you record a guitar is to take care of all the noises that are in between when you move your hand through yeah. the neck. I use those noises. I Love actually push them even louder. And I, <laughs> and I actually lived through uh, once uh, a director telling me, no, but I want those noises that you have, like in the Alejandro movie, where you say, this has happened because not that I, you know, that I, but they were just there because yeah. they were at the well, moment. It's you playing, it's your movement, it's your playing that's, that then, People can feel from hearing it. Correct, and so those those I mean I you know and I have a a, a whole bunch of uh, premises that yeah. I have in place. You know, like uh, you know I, I work with mistakes. I love mistakes. You know, I think some mistakes are just pure mistakes, but some mistakes are really discovery of a mm -hmm. new thing, something that you wouldn't imagine that you will do, and suddenly you know your mistake took you to a new world. Yeah, and, and I explore 
imperfection as part of the perfection, you know? Yeah, and absolutely. end up with something that is very human, extremely human. And I think that's a, a big difference. And the thing of, of, like I mentioned, about me playing it, you know? I mean, obviously, there's great interpreters, and there were fantastic interpreters of songs, for example. But there is something about a song when it's sung by the person that wrote it that is very special, right? And yeah. that I think is a, a little bit what 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 happens too when when I when I feel that I'm that I'm playing. You know, I mean, when you go to a to a, a score recording, you know, it's, they put the charts and there's a lot of people, amazing players that will never make a mistake and will never make a noise <laughs> when they yeah. play. It's fantastic and it's great, and and for that I I, I don't have a I don't uh, I enjoy that too. But I mean, those are elements that are part of my palette, uh, and I think that's what makes it uh, uh, kind of different. Uh, what I do, I don't know if you have any intentions or not, but I would love. I mean, it'd be lovely if it was a kind of concert of your, you know, of, of some of your variety of your work over the years to come to the UK. I, did. And- I actually was last year at Barbican. I oh, was, with the Barbican, were you? No, I missed it. You know, with something that people don't know, that one of the things that I consider that I'm best at, at more than some other things that, you know, I think, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm good or fine, you know, uh, but uh, I, I sing, you know, that's yeah. one of my favorite things, you know. And uh, so I actually do a, a, a journey through my life, through my music. So I, I start playing things that I wrote when I was 15, 17. I go through the, the songs and music from films, the video game. So I yeah. touch everything. Yeah, everything. Oh. It's Next a, it's time, a, I promise I'm there within a second for sure. Yeah, um, but I, I'm planning. And actually, I'm going to be in Europe, but not in England uh, in the summer. I'm going to be in Spain. Whereabouts in Europe? In Spain? Yes. It's not that far. It's an experience. It's it's not something you've seen or heard before. Not because I said, but because uh, it's been uh, said to me by many people and very people that that know. It's 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 very 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 special because we are. It's a band. We are six people, and we play. We all play many. We play like fifty instruments on stage. So we play many uh, many combinations of sounds and timbers, and it's all played. You know. So uh, it's really. I might have to plan my entire summer then around a visit to Spain <laughs> to come and watch the show for sure. I promise you won't regret it. Oh, and Gustavo, I could chat to you all all evening or all day, you know where you are. Um, but I I I know how precious your time is and how busy you are, and I hope we get the chance to do this again because I feel like we've you know we've only really scratched the surface. And I think what's wonderful as well is I was talking about this the other day with The Last of Us. It's such a, an interesting project you know you had this game now there's this this fantastic series that's just finished here in the UK and you don't have to be a gamer to get it but it also gives the gamers something else this drama that's been created is so fantastic because you know my son who's about to become 15 knew everything about the game when we started watching the series but he still got more from watching this beautiful drama. And the good thing about it is that, you know, gamers would have been, it was a big risk. Like, oh, no, this is not. I think the music play a big role. Neil told me that the other day. He said, you know, one of the big mistakes that they've done before is one of the things, the many things is uh, that they change the music sometimes yeah. when they have moved from the video game to the, to the thing. But also, you know, I said, Neil, also is a story because I wrote the music not to a video game. I wrote the music to a great story. 
If there is something that I would like to add, so you have a little bit more of something that probably is good for you to know is one of the things that I, that uh, I could articulate more. I was just pure instinct was that I kind of divided the 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 sounds in the in the in the game, you know, in in the, like a feminine aspect of it and a more masculine aspect of it, and really the, the ronroco really represent the feminine side, you know. That doesn't mean that every time that Ellie will have appear with her own rock or sound, you know what I mean? But just the yeah. more abstract. Yeah. And they use a, a Fender 6 uh, bass from, the, you know, it's, it's a vintage bass, you know, that, that actually is like a lower, it's an octave lower guitar. So it's not like a baritone guitar. Yeah. And it's not like with another string. It's a, it's a particular instrument. And in the second installment, you know, I brought the banjo, sort of like a neutral Americana thing in between those two worlds. And I kept the ronroco. And I also brought a, a like a classical guitar that is an octave lower, lower. too with these strings. So that I thought perhaps this is something interesting to, to have. It is. And then also you, what's great is you have these kind of episodes like episode episode three, long, long time, you know, which is this beautiful kind of almost standalone moment that's yeah. almost you know and and so many people have commented on that particular episode and how just yes, gorgeous and exquisite it is you know to kind of almost just take a moment out of out of the journey that we're on with with Ellie and and Joe but and uh that that episode is is stunning yeah, it's amazing and also has a beautiful piece by Max Richter which I'm a huge fan and probably you know this because you've been writing about Movies, uh, you know, so you know the, when when directors are in love with, with a, a piece with of a, music, there's nothing, you know. So I, I I resisted, you know, to say no, man. I mean, this is yeah. part of that. I'm I'm a, I'm a huge fan. Also. Yeah.
No, it's been it's this this uh, this whole project has been something re really special. Spe I mean, if you think about my career, you know that at this point, you know, I get you know another big round because yeah. if, if it got me to this new uh, audience of 13, 14, 15 year old kids that are devoted to the music, you know, uh, now with this opening with a series that people actually love the story and the series. Some people that perhaps even don't like video games, you know, yeah, that. Now it's really universal. So hopefully I will, I could do a, a world tour, you know, playing yes. this music. <laughs> well, listen, hopefully we can, we can chat again um, around, yeah. um, around so second season. It's so lovely to chat to you. It really, really is. Thank you so much for your time. And I'll see you in Spain. Hey, please. <laughs> you take care. Take care, Gustavo. Thank you. Bye. From a score to the original game of The Last of Us, that's all gone. Rounding off the first part of this episode of Soundtracking with Gustavo Santuolala. Now it's the turn of David Fleming, who was brought in to provide some of the tension and action cues for the TV show, including this one. David, how are you? Hi, Edith. I'm good. How are you? I'm really, really great. Thank you so much. Thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it. I'm a fan of your podcast. I really like it. 
I I mean, it's great timing because I I literally watched the latest, the last episode of the season for The Last of Us uh, last night. Oh, it's so great. I love this show so much. What was it like working on it in terms of, you know, in terms of that history that the story and the narratives got really in? If you don't mind just kind of talking through your whole kind of journey with it really would be great. Well, I mean, the first thing I should admit is the first thing I admitted to the filmmakers, which is that I had not played the game before I started working on it. But I did know some of Gustavo's music. And when I was approached by uh, HBO and uh, Craig and Neil, the showrunners, I think, you know, they were really smart about being um, very respectful of the source material and, and really deferential because it's uh, such a special story and, mm. and it's touched so many people. Um, but at the same time, they were, they, they, I think they were also clever about what they knew they had to adapt, especially because it's a different medium. For, for me, what, what fell on my plate was some of these things that had to change for the new medium, specifically like a lot of the action sequences where, you know, in the game, if you're in an action sequence, usually the music is loopable and it's up to the player how fast or slow the scene goes. And now we're dealing with a television show which has a narrative drive. So uh, a lot of what I was responsible for were, were those sequences. I mean, so much of the rest of the show, they could use Gustavo's amazing music that, that was all based on what he had done in the game. But I got to come in and, and in, in some ways it was really good that I hadn't had a history with the game because as one of these newer elements, I could experience this TV show as a story for the first time. And in that way, sort of be respectful to the original, but also, you know, hopefully bring a new layer uh, for the new medium. And I think a lot of that as well is the kind of the human emotion side of it, isn't mm -hmm. it? It's that it's the it's the relationships because, you know, as much as the immersive experience of the game is, and I, I'm not a gamer really, and I didn't, I haven't played the game, although my 14 year old knew the whole story before we started <laughs> watching it together. And I was like, don't spoil it. <laughs> <laughs> but it was quite interesting actually being on the journey with him because he was, he was clearly looking out for certain things along the way to see whether it featured or not as well, but was really, really completely blown away by. I think particularly the casting and, and these characters and the connection that they had and the performances that they brought to these characters. I just think that there was, um, yeah, I mean, you, it's one of those weird things, isn't it, where you watch a show and you kind of go, it couldn't be anyone else now. Do you know what I mean? It's that sort of thing because they've fully kind of just, even though these characters have been around, they've given them something else. They've given them a whole different dimension in a way. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think they really nailed the casting. and. And also, again, it speaks to realizing what is so special about the game. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, there's something about that game that touches the players who've, who've been immersed in that world really, really deeply. And it's about the yeah. characters and it's about their relationship and the story. And just since I started working on the show, I started playing the game and, and was just, yeah, just really blown away by how much of that emotional blueprint is there if you, if you choose to follow it. And, yeah. and I think obviously having Neil as part of the team, you know, someone so close to the story and Gustavo, and then Craig being able to adapt this to this medium and really take, really pay attention to what is special because uh, you, you know, you don't want it to be a quote unquote zombie show. You know, you want it to really 
be a, a drama where you believe in these characters. And I, I think Craig, uh, and I know, you know, one thing we spoke about early on was we want the audience to feel really immersed in this. One of the special things about video games, I think, is that it's by its nature an active experience that you mm -hmm. are sort of naturally immersed in it. And I think the goal with the show, my goal certainly, and, 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 and the showrunners was, let's not make this a passive experience. Let's also make this feel like you're a part of this. And when Joel and Ellie are in trouble, you want to feel you're in trouble. When they, uh, when they are emotional, you want to feel the same emotions. So I think the cast, the crew, every, everyone was really deferential to what was so special about that source material and, and then brought something, you know, brought one additional layer to it that just elevated yeah. it. So many of the elements of, of different episodes have connected with people, but there's one particular episode that really just kind of, it reached out to people in a way that I think has been so, so beautiful, you know, and, and, and it, I, I know that the characters, did they feature in the game? You know, the episode I'm talking, was it episode three, wasn't it? I've kind of lost my yes, train of thought. Three. They did uh, feature in the game, um, but not in that deeper way. I think it was a so, sort of tangential, you know, um, their, the sort of backstory of Bill. And again, one of the, the really genius parts to expand and really delve into. I, I always, you know, thought of the, the title of the show, you know, The Last of Us, you know, it, obviously it centers around Joel and Ellie, but I love how the show, and I know the game did this as well, but the show especially centers on, on other stories than Joel and Absolutely. Ellie. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and it could be them with another character. So it could be Joel with his brother. It could be, you know, Ellie with her, with that gorgeous episode in the mall that you're so right it kind of can, can really relate to all manner of characters um how involved were you in in that episode three the the least of all the episodes i'm sorry to say no! it's, it, it's my it's my favorite episode no i said i said the same thing i said i said to uh to craig and and one of the producers of of just like guys i know i know this is not my episode but this is this is my favorite um and uh no I, uh, there's a couple scenes in there, but uh, really, by its nature, it was so such so much more uh, a small character piece. Uh, mm -hmm. Whereas I was responsible for some of the bigger set pieces when things go really haywire. But yeah. but be beautiful episode, and and uh, I even the parts I wasn't involved in, I, I've been you know I've loved watching and been able to enjoy. How do you know what you're writing for then with something like this? Because you know, like you say, there's there's an existing kind of foundation there you know in terms of 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 what gustav has done with the game and things and what's coming forward with that but then also i mean there are some absolutely extraordinary moments that you've created for 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 the show talk me a little bit if you don't mind talking a little bit how you you know kind of navigate that is it to script is it to performance is it to both yeah. how did it work well I, I came in uh relatively late uh to the show so most of the episodes were already in pretty good shape and so it was kind of a pleasure to see see where they were and, and not have to Im imagine too much about it. Yeah. But also, you know, I'm an admirer of Gustavo's music. Like I said, I, I knew some of his music for this game um, without knowing the game itself. And I had a pretty good idea of what I wanted to do sonically. Obviously, what I've uh, a lot of the scenes I've done are these are these big action set pieces or tension cues where there's it's not necessarily based on any thematic material of Gustavo's, 
but I wanted it to feel like the same world and a lot of yeah. it sort of in this po- post-apocalyptic starting from scratch uh, setting in a way. So uh, for me, it was really important that even when it was electronic, even when it was aggressive, that it had organic sources. And if we were using a drum, I didn't want it to be any drum. I didn't want it to sound like 30 drummers in a big hall with big Tycos. I wanted it to sound like one drummer with one shit drum and <laughs> mic through an amp and, and just rusty and, and uh, broken. And, and so as, as much as possible, I wanted to evoke that sort of broken quality of the world that I think, you know, they were so good about capturing with, with the design of the show. Again, while it's not directly referencing Gustavo's music, I wanted it to be able to sit next to his and not feel like it was from from another world, but but really feel it was somehow attached or or the the darker yeah. cousin to to what he's done. Because in a way, I think what he's done is is made beauty out of the broken things as well. You know, it's it's like a, after everything is is gone and you have to start from scratch. You know, uh, how, what what does that world sound like? A lot of it was that. A lot of it was also talking to Craig, who had a really specific idea about how he wanted the music to feel. Uh, again, he wanted it to feel very immersive. So it wasn't about... He, he wanted the audience to have a, a very active experience uh, yeah. and engage with the, the tension scenes, especially. So, you know, right off the bat, it was like, I don't want to be humming a tune when I'm when I, when I should feel in danger. You know, I want to feel like I am in their bodies, and so you know, it was an interesting sort of practice of being self-restrictive musically, yeah. Uh, and then seeing, well, what can we do sonically? Uh, you know, having given ourselves those restrictions. easy journey to kind of get to that kind of sonic plane or was it a you know kind of trial and error and trying out different things like i said i had a really good idea of what would work and i had a really good barometer of of what was appropriate and what wasn't the first scene i did was was for the second episode actually where where they're uh, hiding from the clickers and 
And it kind of, the way that scene progresses and, and gets very intense, but also has these moments of, of, of quiet was, was sort of a good uh, canvas to try and come up with a sound for. Yeah. And then in addition, I had uh, some friends help with sound design and every, I, I gave them the whole spiel of, listen, it's, it's all rust and, and crappy, crappy drums and crappy metal. And let's go through amps when we can. I don't want anything to sound like it came from a computer. And then it was just sort of off to the races. And it was just using your sort of good taste barometer to, to try to stay within those lanes. in so well because I think that that's I mean there's so much about the show that I really enjoyed and it's those moments almost where through Ellie's eyes you know her kind of lack of life experience really she really comes to things with a kind of beautiful naivety almost kind of thing or almost a kind of blank canvas type thing and sometimes that could be like simple things of like the type of car or a radio or you know all that kind of stuff yeah and and I think that for you know the way that you're talking about the kind of instrumentation, it kind of feels like there's a lovely pull through to that almost in a way, in terms of it could almost be kind of Ellie's perspective in a way. Yeah, absolutely. And you want it to feel you want it to feel new to the audience, while also obvious. You know, it, it, yeah. If you think about it, the the audience is a perfect mixture of Joel and Ellie because we know the world <laughs> as it is. Yeah. We're also experiencing this world yeah. as as it. It could be, I mean, hopefully not, but you know, what would that be like if, if these things, if everything had to be reset in this way? So mm. I think that's a really good point and, and a really good perspective to see the show through. And the landscapes as well. I mean, you know, it's kind of that thing going, oh my God, this would be horrendous. But actually some really nice moments where you kind of, you know, the serenity and the peace and quiet of walking through these. I mean, there's sometimes those scenes of the the cityscapes that are kind of overgrown with vegetation and things are kind of like, they're absolutely gorgeous. And then yeah. those kind of vast uh, forests and, you know, all that. I mean, it's just beautiful to look at as well. And I wondered whether those, that kind of environmental sort of nature of things was inspirational to you as well for, for certain cues, you know, where they yeah. are. Because sometimes you forget that they're actually escaping things because, they're on a great road trip part of the time. It is really true. I mean, there's something, it's not all, obviously the situation is horrific. I don't, yeah. I wouldn't want to be in the situation, but there is something beautiful about all of it. I mean, I remember uh, before I was working on the show, we were watching some, me and my wife were watching some special about 
sort of if there was, you know, an apocalypse and how quickly plants and uh, fungus would, would break things down and, and mm. there was something relieving about it in a, in a, in a funny way to, <laughs> if the worst were to happen, that life does go on and, and yeah. figure out how to, how, how to reset. Um, Folks said who said that, the Sith is still happening and Mother Nature is still right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. But no, I, I think it did inspire, you know, that quest back towards the organic and not wanting to over overproduce and overhype and, and, and everything. You know, things can can still sound big when they're when the sources are small. And I think that was the goal. And also, I should say, you know, so, some of uh, one thing I forgot to mention is is Gustavo's some some of his his instruments also provided kind of a a, a jumping off point. Like like for yeah. instance, and in, I know in the second second game he was playing, uh, he sort of added banjo to the to the um, to the palette, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And I I had this banjo that was just sitting there. You know, I've I've worked for. I've worked alongside Hans Zimmer for a number of years and yeah. uh, he has a quote. I'm not sure if it's his, but he said it before. Um, <laughs> that, uh, uh, the definition of a gentleman is someone who knows how to play banjo, but refrains. Um, and I think I went the opposite way because I don't know how to play banjo at all. And I was like, this is the perfect time to pick it up and just started mangling, mangling it. And there's something uniquely American about the banjo and obviously it has so many connotations but when you bow it in a certain way and 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 sort of release sounds that are not typical from it it can be really frightening actually yeah i don't know if gustavo meant to inspire me in that way but the banjo i think of billy connolly who i don't know if you're aware of billy connolly the great scottish comedian of course um, yeah and um, prior to being you know hit when he first started he was you know he was a he's a great musician he's a great banjo player and he used to do this kind of um combination of stand-up and banjo playing and stuff so whenever i think of a banjo i always That's that makes me smile think of billy connolly I didn't know, uh, you know, I, I've been aware of his, uh, his comedy. I didn't know about the banjo, but, you know, oh, Steve yeah, Martin. Should... Steve yeah. Martin, also a comedian with a banjo. So there's there's some connection yeah. there. Billy Connolly released loads of albums, like back in the kind of yeah. early 70s of his, yeah, banjo playing and stuff. So if you're on a banjo wow. trip, David, you should head down the Billy Connolly route, maybe. I think, <laughs> I, think I, need a, I think I need a short break. <laughs> <laughs> So then maybe I can engage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, is that part of the joy of 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 creating? I guess is that is that exploration into instruments and using them differently, or finding sounds, getting things, something new out of a an instrument, or finding a 
a connection that it has with a character, with an emotion, with a place. Is that part of what you love about what you do? Oh, completely. Yeah. I mean, even in situations where it wasn't so restricted musically or thematically, finding a sonic identity is one of the the things that is most fun to me. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I love writing for orchestra. I love doing electronic music, but all of these, those things are just, to me, they're just like colors in a box and, and you can use them or not use them. And I think it's so important to key into what makes a story special and what makes it unique. And if you have something that feels natural to the world that you're watching or, or derived from it, I just think it really gives you the possibility of pulling someone into your music and, and, mm-hmm. and then affecting them emotionally from there. It's, it's one of the most fun things and never more so than on this project where the world is so frightening, but so beautiful and, and yeah. really feels it needs to be described in, in a unique way, you know? I think another great example of that uh, and a score that you worked on was June, to be honest, you know, in terms of mm. kind of world creating through sound. It's one of the things I, lo- I love best about working with Hans because, you know, it's not it's never let's do the typical thing and, and call it a day. It's it's what what is special about about this place we're describing, you know, of, mm. of, of course, you know, you want musical themes that connect people to your characters but but also why leave those other crayons on the table you know why why just go to the same colors every time it's it's such a fun thing to really dive in and get way above your head uh you know with instruments you've never used or don't know how to play and just see what comes out because you know if it can be surprising for you then hopefully it'll be surprising for an audience as well yeah what made you want to work in film composing? Well, there was a lot growing up. I I I worked in a video store all mm-hmm. all through my adolescence and and you know, I was playing in bands, but I was I was always connecting with with music and film. And a friend asked me to to score like a little short thing and it was just one of those times when time disappears and you just get sucked into it and and it never seemed like much of a, a choice, really. I would say the other the other element of it is my my mother's a literature teacher, and it was always story, 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 sort of ingrained in me from a young age. I think some people sort of get into this because they feel like it's an outlet for music. For me, music is my way into storytelling, and 
that's really what I connect with. And it's why working with good stories is so important for, for what I do and, and so inspiring. It, that's so interesting because I do think there's so many journeys into the world of composing for film and TV. Gone are the days where kind of, you know, TV, the, the landscape of TV is, is, is on evil, even keels with film. Uh, uh, you know, more so now than ever, just in terms of how wonderfully committed the production companies and the TV, the, the streamers or whoever it is are to to making this, these brilliant productions. You know, it's, it's wonderful. It just gives, I don't know. And, and uh, for you, in terms of having those two worlds kind of running of feature film, but also, you know, TV work as well. Uh, it was funny. I spoke to Carter Burwell and he was talking about working on the morning show. And he mm-hmm. was kind of like, I didn't realize it was so much work. <laughs> <laughs> he was kind of like, oh, oh, wow. There's a lot of it. And which was so lovely and, and kind of just so honest of him as well to say, you know, in terms of someone of that kind of stature and the, the work that he's done in film. And it was kind yeah, of like, it was a lot of work. That's definitely relieving to hear him say that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but for you, what 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 is it that um, appeals to you when when projects are, are are around and there's an opportunity for you to work on something? What are you? Is the storytelling the part of it? Is it the filmmaker? Is it the collaboration? Or is it it's all number of things? Oh, it's all those things. I mean, the filmmaker is, is hugely important, but I think that the filmmaker really informs the storytelling. Like, you know, the, what you're saying about television is is true. And, and I think in some ways, you know, television, the, that the sort of episodic uh, structure has allowed storytelling to, you know, visual storytelling to, to go back to, to being a little more novelistic where you can, you can really spend time with characters, Yeah, which in a fun way I think is what, what connects people to video games as well is uh, they're spending a, a huge amount of time immersed with these characters. And sometimes a, a movie, especially, especially if it's like a frantically paced movie, you, you can feel like, well, I don't know what just happened, you know? <laughs> yeah. uh, whereas if you have a filmmaker like, like Denis with Dune, he also changes the pace and and mm-hmm. says like let's not just blow through all this stuff i i think i think if you think about you know what you're doing with podcasts and how people are consuming things yes attention spans are low but also people want to be immersed for longer periods of time when they're absolutely. enjoying absolutely absolutely so, i mean i i totally agree with you i think that there's a real kind of there's a laziness of people to assume that people are just interested in kind of short form, short bursts of things. I think that people, there's a real hunger out there for, you know, in-depth conversations. That's why I've been so kind of beautifully surprised at the response we get to this podcast. It's, you know, it's quite niche. It's quite kind of in-depth at times about kind of knowledgeable stuff about film, even though I'm coming to it as a fan. But I think you're so right. There's a real hunger for, for knowledge, I think is what it is. And it is that depth. People want to believe that there's something behind what they're watching or they, they want to, to feel there is this life under the surface of the quick entertainment, you know, or, mm-hmm. or at least I'd like to think so. It seems that's, that's, that's what connects, connects with people. So I, and again, I think that comes all from the filmmaker. And if you have a good story, if you have something like Last of Us where someone is clearly respecting these characters and saying we're not just going to blow through the story we're not going to treat this as a, a, a typical video game adaptation you know people believe in these characters people believe in this story and so let's spend some time with them and 
I think it's so lovely to experience entertainment that way as something with with real depth that you want. I, uh, who, who, I can't remember who said this, but you know, uh, uh, I think maybe it was Roger Ebert about a good movie never being long enough and a bad movie never being short enough. Something like that. I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. If you have something something good, that's that's worth diving diving oh, deep. Totally. I felt like that at the end of of June. I was kind of like, no, <laughs> no. It's just like ah, oh. like literally. I think I shouted at the screen because I was like, ah, oh, just didn't want yeah. it to end. I just wanted to be in that world with those characters and just kind of get over that sand dune and see what's next. Yeah, there's more coming. So you know, are you be- working on it? I think I think so. I think that's the plan. I I I haven't uh, seen or heard or heard much thus far, but these things uh, they they show up and and yeah. when you get that from Hans and he says, "Do you want to do something fun?" You know, it's, <laughs> there's, always, there's always something interesting after after that uh, initial sentence. So so we'll see. You know, filmmakers like Denis, filmmakers like Craig and Neil. It's just like any chance you get to. Mm work with people who who really respect quality and 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 want to create that emotional connection it's like why the hell not you know it's it's always going to be a rewarding experience i think han needs to um have his own theme park (laughs) which which we'd have kind of you know like like in disney where it's kind of like you know the Magic Kingdom and Epcot uh-huh. and all that kind of stuff. It would be kind of all the worlds, some of the worlds that Hans created. Yeah, it would oh, be so great. That's just, yeah, I'm going to throw that his way next time I get the, the honour of chatting to him. As long as it's based on 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 the films that yeah. he scores and, and, and not the actual life of the film composer, I don't think okay. that would be uh, <laughs> real right. I don't know if that's and ready what? for the park adaptation. Oh, it's the weird thing the the media and the way that they kind of the, they're they're kind of almost the, the last episode of the season of The Last of Us went out and then suddenly there's kind of press about season two and it's like guys mm-hmm. just let us have a moment to have a conversation about this amazing series and maybe rewatch it again and talk about it and stuff and then yeah let us digest it before you start kind of telling us what we need to think about season two before anything's even it's crazy I know. That is the that is the the sort of um, the flip side of the coin of, of of people really wanting to spend time with characters is that they also want the next thing right away. I mean, I'm doing I'm doing that with Succession right now. Is is like I'm trying I'm realizing that this next season is going to be the last, and I've got to I've got to enjoy it and and uh, yeah while it's still on. So yeah, I you know it's that thing of when your friend gets engaged and. And people start saying, "Oh, when, you know, when's when the you wedding? Having when you're having a baby. You're having a baby. We just, yeah. just, just slow the pace. Everything is better if you, if you slow the pace a little bit yeah. and and, and uh, yeah. enjoy it. But um, <laughs> no, it is exciting and and it's and it's great that what was nice to see with this show in particular was that the strategy of of being true to the game seems to have paid off in that it's not just video game fans who like the show it really appealed to everyone and and i think in fact drove up sales of the original video game so it's i think it it really speaks to 
them doing something right with the show mm-hmm. and that people are that enthusiastic about about wanting to see what's what's next in the story and so i i do i do understand the impatience at the same time but Will yeah i agree on it? i i hope so you know it was such a pleasure working with these guys and 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 gustavo who i finally met after after we were done with the show and and um, oh that's great i i i really admire him and 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 uh, uh i'd love to work with him again and yeah it's just sometimes when you when you finish a project it can feel like a giant relief yeah and and sometimes it can feel like like you felt at the end of dune like oh can't this just keep going you know <laughs> yeah. and, and that's definitely how this one this one felt so um so yeah we'll see uh, we'll see what is next what what can we we hear your creativity on next I'm doing a score for Netflix for a fantasy film called Damsel with um, Millie Bobby Brown, which oh, is wow. a, like a, it's a it's a complete uh, left turn 180 from from Last of Us, uh, you know, um, orchestral fantasy epic and right. Uh, but it's like the diversity of stuff that you've you could that worked in. That's the that's the kind of beauty and I guess where you want to be as a composer anyway, isn't it? Is that you kind of get to, you know, you get to do things like last of us or June or blue planet, you know, that kind of stuff as well. Mm-hmm. It's, it's sort of, you know, it's what excites you and what gives you the opportunity of everything we've talked about tonight. Yeah. I've been conflicted about that my whole life. I think, especially, you know, when you grow up playing in bands and everything is like, well, what's your, what's your sound, you know, what's the sound. And, and <laughs> it always seemed so oppressive to me. And, and one of the things I really love about, about what I do is, is yeah, just being thrown in the, in the deep end. I just finished this score for this sort of new Western called Americana and sort of did like a Johnny Cash by way of Morricone thing and, and, you know, recorded pedal steel guitar, which I I had no experience with, but now I know, you know, at least I've taken a crash course in pedal steel and, and, (laughs) and the, the director, Tony is like fully immersed in country Western music and just spending time going through playlists with him. I've got Mm. like all these new or not new, they're mostly old, old country artists that I, I, I'm like in love with now. So it's not like we do it for the education, but I think that especially if you're if you're a musician and you're basically stuck in a studio most most of the time isn't it nice to be able to explore new worlds all the time yeah. and i quite like that element of it and and um I, again it seems like everything in our conversation comes back to the banjo but being really finding value in being deeply immersed in something. It's like if you, whether it's the banjo, whether it's country music or bluegrass or whatever, if you have no experience in it, you can sort of write it off in a, in a way or say, or say, I think I know what that is and put it in this corner of your head and, and say, I don't need to visit there. But then if you really take a dive and you go along willingly, you can find all, all this stuff that you never thought you would connect with. You never thought, you know, like the pedal, the pedal steel guitar, you know, if you think about like modern, modern country music, I know we're fully in the country music train now. If you think about modern country music. I'll just get my stats and give me one second. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of the sound, you could say it's, it's top 40 with like a little pedal steel in the background, a little more twang in the voice, the lyrics. Are, mm. uh, but when you're sitting in a room with somebody who knows 
how to play that instrument. It's the most beautiful thing and you yeah. encounter it in a completely different way. I think it, it really does require a very fundamental humbling of yourself to, to say, I want to experience something yeah. that I'm not comfortable with or I don't know anything about. Or yeah, or I or I thought I knew something about you know. Yeah. So I I think um, at least for now or on my on my sort of musical journey thus far, it's been it's been being thrown in a lot of deep ends of pools and <laughs> and there's panic, yes, of course, when you get thrown, but it's always fun figuring out your way out of it. And and to to me, it's it's more of the fun rather than going back to the well. Oh, that's such a lovely way to put it, David. That's so great. Um, Listen, I've kept you for so long tonight. I'm so grateful for your time. It's been such a treat to chat to you and I hope we get to do it again. Um, But yeah, thank you so much for your time and just being so so open and uh, and chatting with me tonight. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. The pleasure's all mine. Yeah. All right. Take care. All right. You too. Bye. Bye. to The Last of Us That Survived by David Fleming rounding off this soundtracking double header my huge thanks to David and Gustavo for taking the time to talk to me you can watch series one of The Last of Us on Sky or Now TV now I've spoken to various people discussed during this episode on the podcast including Ang Lee and you can find that chat at edithbowman.com along with every other one we've done over the last six or seven years if you can please do follow us on socials. We are at Soundtracking UK. And do also subscribe to our YouTube channel for loads of bonus video content. I have stuck loads up there over the last couple of weeks. Uh, Diego Luna is up there. James Cameron is up there. I'm going to stick Gustavo up there as well today. So please do go and check that out. 
Next up, uh, we thought we'd give you a couple of days to dive into Dead Ringers, which hits uh, Amazon on the 21st of April. So that's this coming Friday. And next Monday, you're going to hear from the uh, the showrunner and writer, Alice Birch, who also has worked on the likes of Succession. She wrote Normal People as well. She did the adaptation of Normal People. Uh, and its star, the fabulous Rachel Weiss, who also takes on the role of executive producer on the show Dead Ringers. Rachel Weiss and Alice Birch, next week's guests on Soundtrack, and I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. Thank you.